Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. How much did you pay the last time you booked a room in a National Park Lodge? Did it seem kind of expensive? You might say so, especially when you realize that lodging prices in the parks have been rising at about roughly twice the annual consumer price index. Lodging experts David and Case Scott took a look at room rates in an article on The Traveler this past week. We also received an update on the Great White Shark situation at Cape Cod National Seashore from Dolores Kong and Dan Ring, who run the AcadiaOnMyMind.com blog. Those and other stories about national parks can be found on NationalParksTraveler.org. In this week's show, Erica Zambello visits with Dr. Rolf Peterson, a wolf expert at Michigan Tech University, about the efforts to restore wolves at Isle Royale National Park. We also take a look at some books that have reached our mailbox and wrap up the show with a look at some of the incredible caving adventures that await you in the national park system. This is Erica Zambello, and today I am speaking with Dr. Rolf Peterson about the wolves of Isle Royale National Park. Isle Royale has begun an ambitious project to restore wolves as a top predator which in turn restores the historic food chain in this region. Dr. Rolf Peterson, research professor at Michigan Tech, talks with us about the beginnings of the Wolf Project and what the future could bring. So for those out there who have not visited, what is Isle Royale National Park like? What does it look like? Where is it? You know, what kind of ecology are we looking at? Oh, it's a chunk of mostly northern boreal forest, uh, Isolated on a big rock in the exterior, and it's it's interesting text, you know, in terms of vegetation because it's got elements of the northern boreal and also the uh, more hardwood forest found on the south side of Lake Superior. So it's a blend of the two. All forested, uh, no roads, and uh, it's been a, a national park. It was dedicated in 19, or was authorized finally in 1941. So if people do want to visit the park, how do they get there? Do they paddle? Do they take a boat? How how does one get to to the park? Uh, the park is only open six months of the year, from May to uh, September. And you can get there on one of three boats from the mainland, and two from Upper Michigan, Minnesota, and, uh, or four boats, actually, two from Minnesota. And you can, uh, oh, or you can fly on a float plane from Houghton, Michigan, or from now from uh, Minnesota as well. But you can't drive there. Gotcha. The National Park Service has recently teamed up with multiple partners to bring wolves back to Isle Royale National Park. So, where did ideas for this project germinate? How long has this introduction of wolves been in the works? Well, um, my colleague and I, Jen. Dan Dustich and uh, Michael Nelson and I wrote an editorial in the New York Times in 2012, which was entitled Save the Wolves of Isle Royale. So it's been since 2012, so about six or seven years. And how do you go from from calling for that wolf introduction in the New York Times to actually putting boots on the ground or paws on the ground, as it were? Well, the Park Service... uh, chose to just wait and see for several years and, and, and 
so they waited until 2015, and then at that point they launched an environmental impact study, uh, which uh, they guessed would take a couple of years, two or three years. It took three years, uh, and then some. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and they considered all the uh, all the options during that EIS for how to respond to the disappearance, the imminent disappearance of wolves from oil oil because of uh, inbreeding, which was ultimately caused by disappearing ice on Lake Superior. So let me make sure I have the timeline right. So ice disappeared from Lake Superior. So the wolves became isolated on the island. And because they got so isolated, they were forced to inbreed, which weakened the population as a whole. And over time, they just disappeared. Uh, you're, you're 80% there. Uh, okay. the, ice, the ice forms every winter, and it's gradually become less and less of a, of a something you can count on. And so the measurements, the formal measurements, date back to the 60s of off, and ice formed ice bridges, what we call it. Uh, so in the 60s, there would be ice bridges 80% of the years and that just dwindled and dwindled uh, to the point where uh, in the last decade it's more like one out of every 10 years. So as the ice bridges became less and less frequent, there was less and less opportunity for wolves to wander over to Isle Royale and become incorporated into the population as a breeder. And we only know that that's happened twice in, in 70 years. But... Uh, that was sufficient, those two times, and maybe ones we didn't know about, were sufficient to keep the population genetically fit until the 90s, really. Is that reduction in the number of years with ice bridges a result of climate change? Well, it's a reflection of climate change, sure. The temperature of the, the region has been warming for a century, Pretty clearly, and some of the <clears throat> oldest records in Canada, actually, temperature records, are right in Thunder Bay on the Canadian shore. So I think uh, it's been a while since I've calculated it, but I think uh, a full two degrees warmer between, you know, from a century ago to the present day. Okay. Locally. And then uh, perhaps more important than temperature is that uh, wind has increased okay. in the winter, wintertime. So the wind is also a factor in creating these ice bridges. Yeah, and most people don't keep track of wind as, as easily as temperature. Wind set, takes out a lot of ice bridges that start to form. So, And our, our research efforts are limited by wind, so we're very sensitive to wind in the wintertime because we're flying light airplanes around. Yeah, that makes sense. And so why is reintroducing wolves so important to the national park. What is what is the the role they play in that ecosystem? Well, they keep a lid on the moose population. Uh, moose have a capacity to increase pretty rapidly if predation isn't present. And uh, as the wolf population collapsed, basically in 2012, the moose population started increasing, and it's uh, <clears throat> it's basically quadrupled in number in, uh, what is it, seven years or so. The uh, moose population in Nile Wells always been relatively high, high enough to limit tree regeneration 
and um, it's that that is serious enough so that over the decades the uh, forest itself is is disappearing. The canopy, botanists call it canopy breakup. Trees are disappearing. So the forest, as we know it, and has and has been there for centuries, is in the process of disappearing, and most greatly accelerate that. So they need the wolves to keep the moose populations in check to keep the vegetation component of the ecosystem healthy. Yep, you got it. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Ralph Peterson. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. And moose eat a lot of aquatic plants and they have a capacity to greatly alter bodies of water to the point where they eat everything, (laughs) they eat all the vegetation and produce a lot of sediment uh, stir up a lot of sediment. I mean, they totally transform bodies of water. And so when they do that and they and they rip out all the vegetation, is that a major problem because it reduces habitat for other aquatic species? Is it changing the water quality? Is Or is it kind of all the above? Oh, everything. Yeah, everything you can imagine about pond, the physical, chemical, and biological characteristics of a pond um, would be altered by moose. So... Getting back to the wolves for a second. So wolves have already been transplanted onto the island. So there's uh, addition of wolves from Canada. One was brought from the mainland, six from an island. Do you know if the wolf from the mainland was from the pack captured on the island? If it's from a different pack, are there any concerns about it being killed? What do you worry about sort of in the intraspecies dynamic between these different wolves that are being transplanted to the park? I don't really worry about it very much at all. Um, there, were, there were, right on the island now, at this point, there are two wolves from northeastern Minnesota, 
Pete from Mitch McCoy Island, the island in Lake Superior, <clears throat> that, uh, that's a, basically a, a tight family group, and then three from a mainland population near Wawa, which is at the east end of Lake Superior. So those are three quite distinct uh, genetic stocks. How did you choose where you were going to get these different genetic stocks? Well, I didn't do any of it. This is all <laughs> something that the National Park Service is responsible for. So they, uh, they in their plan, in their EIS, uh, they, and in the, the implementation plan that quickly developed after that, they proposed basically three source populations, uh, Minnesota, Ontario, and Upper Michigan. Um, in an effort to begin the new population with a, with genetic diversity that would give it a long run time, they purposely adopted a strategy that's actually quite different than it would normally unfold naturally. I mean, you know, a pair would get over there, have pups, and take over the place, and then in a period of several generations, that population would become progressively more inbred. And the inbreeding uh, was something the Park Service wanted to forestall as long as possible. So they chose to start out with a, uh, a mix of genetic stocks. How many packs are there currently on the island? And do you think they'll stay separate, or do you think they'll assimilate into just one larger pack? Oh, it has to happen and let the wolves will figure out on their own. Uh, so this is entirely self-directed. Okay. <laughs> completely in charge of what they're going to do, and nobody has much idea, really, except that we would expect somebody's going to reproduce, if not this year, more likely next year. And then those those individuals, that male-female pair that reproduce, they will automatically claim the territory. And uh, they wouldn't, they certainly wouldn't need the whole island, but they may claim more than they need. Uh, who knows? There are still two island-born wolves, a male and female, who lay claim to the eastern end, and they're not, they're not giving it up. Is there a target number of wolves that you want the island to have, or is this kind of a step-by-step process, and at each step you're analyzing the population? Uh, our service, fortunately, has a, a long history of data, too. So they don't really have to guess how many wolves are, can be supported in Iowa. The, the uh, number of 20 to 30 on average is pretty solid. Uh, and the, the environmental impacts study uh, allowed for uh, the Park Service to actually move 20 to 30 wolves to Iowa over a three- to five-year period. So that's plenty of wolves to stock and provide the nucleus for a new population. Uh, but nobody knows how many there, there will be in five years. Uh, but I would guess over 30, just because the moose population is pretty high and it's getting to the point where there's a bunch of old moose starting to uh, show up. So prey availability for wolves in the next five, six years should be just getting better and better. Okay, so even even better for potential pups and new generations of wolves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, as climate change continues and the land or the ice bridges become even less frequent, 
is there an expectation that every few decades ecologists will have to do what they're doing now, which is repopulate the island? Or is it, are we even thinking that far ahead yet? Well, the timeline for the, the uh, EIS was 20 years, and the Park Service thinks that's about as far out in the future as we can even imagine, or much less predict. Uh, uh, but yeah, if, if, if there's moose on Isle 50 years from now, it's possible that the, the wolves would have to be propped up one more time to make it that far. In the long term, of course, well, it's, it's hard to tell. I, uh, people just assume that warming will just continue, and moose are at the southern edge of their continental range at Isle Royale, so they're not, uh, you know, they're vulnerable to heat, both in summer and winter. But there's, uh, there's good reason to think that Isle Royale will be, if moose indeed do dwindle because of climate change, Isle Royale will, will be the last to go. So they could, in fact, be the, the major refuge for moose decades hence. You anticipated my question perfectly because I'm, uh, I'm from New England and our moose populations are certainly struggling, not just because of the heat, but because of our proliferation of ticks that feed on them more so now because winters are, are that much more mild. And so you mentioned that, you know, they're already on the southern end of their range and that this could be an oasis for them um, or holdover for them into the future. Do your moose populations deal with the same tick problem that the New England moose populations do? And, you know, if the moose populations disappear, will the wolves necessarily follow? Yeah, the ticks are certainly at Isle Royale. Those are winter ticks that are, uh, you know, were native to North American white-tailed deer. And moose, uh, having come from Eurasia, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, didn't didn't have any adaptations to this tick, so the tick is pretty destructive, and it does seem to be worse in New England than in uh, the upper Midwest, and I don't know why. Um, but probably the biggest threat to moose will be uh, brainworm, which is uh, carried by white-tailed deer, and this is a parasite that's just flat-out fatal to moose, and it's transmitted all, virtually all white-tailed deer have it, and so, in my opinion, that's, the, that's, that's what really has driven the disappearance of moose across the uh, Canadian-U.S. border. And Isle Royale doesn't have any deer, so okay. it doesn't have a brainworm. And that's why I would be uh, pretty optimistic in terms of moose future on Isle Royale, as long as there's no deer. And right. the best firewall against having that happen would be to have wolves there. Right. That makes sense. So wolves are important not only for maintaining uh, the vegetation that the moose would eat, but they're also important for the moose themselves because they keep deer from the island and thus keep that disease from infecting moose as well. Yeah, and that, the switch from deer from moose to deer has already already occurred on the adjacent mainland. So their deer are just sitting there waiting, and they don't wait. No, they they get in the lake and they swim. Yeah, but so far they, they die before they get to Isle Royale. But someday they will get there live. And uh, wolves uh, would take care of them pretty handily, I think. Yeah, I would imagine so. And I guess the thought that I want to leave with is, 
people are going to visit the park. You know, the wolves are there now. Some people have negative perceptions of wolves from the media, etc. What do you want the visitors to know about the wolves on Isle Royale? Well, I would say that uh, it's important to realize the wolves are managing the island uh, in ways that we just barely appreciate. And they manage it with a sensitivity to lots of things that uh, people would be hard-pressed to uh, to do themselves. Uh, in terms of killing moose, I mean, that's, they don't just kill any moose. They try to kill any moose, but they're limited to killing calves and old moose. And so they're producing a uh, long-term uh, prey population that's evolved in a, in a different direction than what that hunting by humans, for example, would do. So, so the wolves are really the guardians of the forest in our world, and, and they're, they're as safe as anything. They're much safer than moose, I would say. So mm-hmm. people are not only, well, some people not only hate wolves, they're afraid of them, and I think the fear is what is the foundation of the hatred. But, the, but there's no reason to be afraid of, of wolves, ironically. Mm-hmm. And the only large carnivore that doesn't regularly prey on people. Yeah, that's definitely good to know and, and good for visitors to, to know as well. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time talking to us about this fascinating project. And we will keep abreast of, of the updates from the island and, and everything like that. So, so thank you so much for your time. Yep, thank you very much. Good luck, though. For National Parks Traveler, this is Erica Zambello. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Throughout the year, more than a few books find their way to the traveler for review. Some are quickly cast aside, either because they're not specific enough to national parks or because they don't hold our interest. Others we hold in our hands and revel as we turn the pages. Two recent titles we received dealt with wildlife, both terrestrial and marine. From David Lee Myers, we received Wings in the Light, Butterflies in North America. As beautiful as most butterflies are, we have to remind ourselves that they are not always the flitting creatures of elegance we often presume. Myers makes that clear when he tells us, Tempted as we are to think of butterflies as pureness and delight, it's worthwhile to watch for them on poop and carrion, which they feed on. 
That passing primer of butterfly behavior is attached to a photo from Big Bend National Park, where Myers found a Vesta crescent butterfly on what looks to be some horse manure. The author's encyclopedic approach to chronicling the continent's butterflies has to be viewed as a work of tenacity. If you've ever tried to keep up with a butterfly as it fluttered across your yard or through a meadow, you know that. Meyer's doggedness in pursuit comes across not only in the more than 400 color photographs he provides us with, but in where he found some of them. For instance, take the shot of the California tortoise shell he photographed in Cascade Siskiyou National Monument in Oregon. It was in the grasp of a spider that was in a flower blossom. Indeed, the author, a natural history and landscape photographer for more than five decades, showcases more than a few butterflies captured by predators. But that's life, and not just in a butterfly's world. This not-quite-300-page book is rich, and not just in butterfly images, of which there are many. Those are displayed page after page after page in all sorts of manners. There are page-consuming shots, such as the one of the brightly colored Melissa Blues consummating their union somewhere in California. How difficult and timely was that to capture? And then half-page images, such as the one taken in Big Bend of a Mexican yellow, hard to see on first glance, as it's deep into a yellow prickly pear bloom, lapping up some nectar. There are pages filled with snapshots of similarly-hued butterflies. Take page 52, for instance. It displays images of echo azures and western tail blue, captured in the same photo nonetheless. And then there's the echo azure by itself, Melissa blue, marine blue, and silvery blue. Beyond the photos, the book is organized in an instructive fashion with supporting text. Myers provides us with a chapter on butterfly taxonomy, another on what to look for in butterfly markings when you're out in the field. He devotes one chapter to monarch butterflies, portrays predators to butterflies, and provides us with a chapter on the habitats of butterflies. Now, not all images are razor sharp, which should provide no small measure of solace to others who have gone in pursuit of butterflies with cameras in tow. For those determined to hone their lepidopterous skills, as well as those just wanting to know what species went flitting by, this is a good book to have. If there's any disappointment, though, it's that the book is hardcover and so not easily stuffed into your day pack. Now, as we go about life walking on Earth, breathing air, feeling the sun on our backs, we can't forget about the ocean and its treasures. The oceans are vibrant with their wide, diverse rainbow of life, from colorful coral reefs that teem with emerald parrotfish, blue tangs and black and yellow striped sergeant majors, to solitary whale sharks, toothy moray eels, and playful sea lions. Christian Vizel captures these and many more denizens of the seas in his new book that showcases the ocean's life. Silent Kingdom, A World Beneath the Waves, It's a book that we can and should revel in the photography. It should also remind us that the oceans are ailing, polluted with plastics, and struggling with ocean acidification and warming. Nearly a quarter of the national park system, places such as Dry Tortugas National Park, Virgin Islands National Park, Cape Cod National Seashore, Padre Island National Seashore, Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve, and so many other treasured spots in the system are touched, even surrounded, by marine waters. And in those waters reside the life forms that Vizel turned his cameras on. This 220-page-plus large format book arriving next month is surprising, not only with the sea creatures Vizel portrays, but also due to the fact that this is a black-and-white collection, not full of color. Dr. Sylvia Earle, the famed oceanographer, writes in her introduction to the book that Life in the sea is famously rich with color, even at nighttime and in the deep sea. 
where lights are required to illuminate brilliant red shrimp and fish, purple urchins, iridescent jellies, and bright orange sponges, crabs, and corals. But in this volume, Vizzle insists that we focus on form, texture, and rhythm so we can see details lost in the sea's usual riot of color. This approach to capturing Earth's wildlife takes me back to my youth midway through the last century, when black and white photography was the dominant illustrative approach due to its less expense to publish. But as Vizzle craftfully displays, it's not a lesser format. There are graceful jellyfish, male sea lions kissing female sea lions, manta rays gliding in formation above the seafloor, and all species of sharks. Some images have had their ocean backgrounds erased, leaving sharks and surrounding fishes floating against a white backdrop, making it even easier to see the sharp lines of their physiques. Others overwhelm with life. Occasionally breaking up this exploration and celebration of sea life are essays by Michael Law, Ernie Brooks, David Doublet, and Nora Torres that remind us of the threats facing the oceans and their life, as well as of the beauty of black and white photography. As David Doublet put it, pictures have power. They have the power to celebrate, educate, honor, and humiliate. They have the power to convince the unconvinced. And most important of all, they have the power to make people fall in love with and protect this planet and its seas. Christian's imagery is powerful because it captures the rhythm of our oceans during one of the greatest periods of marine change in Earth's history. We need to keep that in mind as we go through the pages of this wonderful book. For after all, this is a book to remind us of what wonderful life we have to lose. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at www.gtnpf.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. One of the most intriguing interpretive tours I've joined across the national park system was the Wild Cave Tour offered at Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky. For six or more hours in sections of the cave normally off limits to the more traditional tours, we scooted through tight places on our bellies when not able to get by on our hands and knees. Headlamps lit our way, hard hats protected our skulls from low-hanging rock walls and ceilings, and coveralls kept us relatively clean as we shimmied through cracks and crevices. The ranger led us through chambers, to waterfalls, and up and down the subterranean landscape. It was a tour I would quickly repeat. Then, too, I've gone on the Crystal Cave tour at Sequoia National Park in California. Much, much shorter than the Mammoth Cave Wild Cave tour, this experience was enjoyable, but it really did pale in comparison to Mammoth Cave's offering. But that's not the point. 
Rather, it's that there are some pretty interesting caves scattered across the national park system that are worth exploring. Let's take a look at some of the best-known caves in the national park system. Topping the list is Carlsbad Caverns National Park in southeastern New Mexico. It contains more than 100 caves that were created in the 250-million-year-old Capitol Reef Formation. Among them is America's deepest and arguably most beautiful cave, Lechaguilla. It's closed to the public, however. But then there is Carlsbad Cavern, a very popular tourist cave with one of the largest underground chambers in the world. Carlsbad's public cave facilities, which are renowned for their scale and sophistication, include such remarkable features as elevators in a 700-foot deep shaft, an underground lunchroom, and an amphitheater for bat flight watching. The big room is even partially wheelchair accessible. The park, which now attracts about a half a million visitors a year, was established as a national monument in 1923 and upgraded to national park status in 1930. Jewel Cave National Monument in the Black Hills of South Dakota is one of the lesser publicized parks, but it is a giant in the world of caves. In fact, Jewel Cave is the second longest cave in the world. By the end of 2018, the cave's tally of known passageways had reached 200 miles, and it's expected to go even higher. The Jewel, in the cave's name, alludes to the sparkling calcite crystals that impressed the cave's explorers back in 1900. The National Monument was established in 1908 and turned over to the Park Service for management in 1933. Park management began offering guided tours in 1939. Today, most visitors take the scenic tour that visits a formerly remote area of the cave that has been made accessible by a 300-foot elevator and has a half-mile loop trail with concrete walks and metal stairs and platforms. Mammoth Cave National Park in Kentucky is one of America's oldest and busiest tourist attractions. Although the national park wasn't established until 1941, formal cave tours have been offered at the site since 1816. Today, Mammoth Cave is by far the world's longest cave system, with about 400 miles of explored passageways, and has many scenic delights and interesting cultural historical artifacts. A variety of general and special interest tours is available. Reservations are strongly recommended, however, especially from April through October. Oregon Cave's National Monument and Preserve, which is situated in the Siskiyou Mountains of southwestern Oregon, is one of our older national monuments, the Oregon Caves were formed in marble rocks that were once a tropical reef. The original calcareous rocks of the reef were metamorphosized to marble when the reef got pushed about 12 miles under the Earth's surface before being uplifted to around 4,000 feet above sea level. The three and a half mile moderately strenuous cave tours take about 90 minutes. Scientists are keenly interested in the cave's Pleistocene mammal fossils and numerous cave-dwelling insects. The Oregon Caves were discovered in 1884, became a national monument in 1909, and were transferred to the Park Service in 1933. In Utah, Timpanogos Cave National Monument was established in 1922 in the Wasatch Mountains. This park shows that a federal land holding need not be very big to be very special. Just 250 acres in size, Timpanogos protects three spectacularly scenic tunnel-connected caverns. Hansen, Middle, and Timpanogos. Inside the cave, you'll find some very interesting fault-controlled passages, very colorful formations, and fragile halactites in numbers seldom seen in public caves. The hour-long cave tours are very popular, but only available during the summer. The park is closed in winter due to heavy alpine snows. 
Temperatures in the cave remain a chilly 45 degrees throughout the year. Wind Cave National Park is located in the Badlands region of southwestern South Dakota, not far from Mount Rushmore National Memorial and Jewel Cave National Monument. When President Theodore Roosevelt designated Wind Cave in 1903, he not only made it the seventh national park in America, but also the first created to preserve a cave. Wind Cave's 150 miles of passages make it the fifth longest cave in the world. The wind, in the cave's name, alludes to an interesting weather phenomenon that causes the wind direction at the cave's mouth to shift 180 degrees. Changes in barometric pressure determine whether air is blown out of the cave's mouth or sucked into it. If you really want to be on top of your national park trivia, know that there are more than 70 national parks that were not established for the primary purpose of protecting cave resources that actually have caves within their borders. These caves exhibit great variety, are found in many areas of the country, and in some cases contain important historical and cultural resources, such as Native American artifacts or relics of old guano mining operations. Which park has the most caves? Believe it or not, it's Grand Canyon National Park, which holds more than 400 known caves. Now given the great size of the park and its abundance of bedded limestone, this should not be surprising. More surprising, however, are the many cave-related anomalies across the national park system, such as the presence of caves in some cultural historical units, such as the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal National Historic Park, or the existence of water-filled caves in Death Valley National Park. That's it, travelers, a primer on caves in the national park system. Now go out there and bag some. For National Parks Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.